You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI. Uh, this week, we're going to be focusing in part on the um, Vietnamese International Film Festival that began last Thursday and continues through the weekend uh, coming up at uh, UCLA, uh, UC uh, Browers Museum, at, and at UC Irvine. And the website for more information on this fifth edition of the Vietnamese International Film Festival is uh, www.vietfilmfest.com. Dot com, where you can get um, lists of the films that are going to show the screening times as well as some uh, reviews and interviews. Uh, today we will be on Subversity interviewing uh, a filmmaker with a conscience. Uh, he's done some provocative films in the past and he, is, uh, he hails from Australia uh, and we'll be talking with him shortly about his latest uh, film that showed at VIF, Vietnamese International Film Festival, on Saturday. Um, and he's also a spotlight uh, filmmaker, uh, specially featured for this uh, festival. And his film is really a creative take on the refugee exodus, uh, not the exodus that's going on right now that's hitting Australian shores, uh, of other countries, uh, but this was the one 35 or more years ago that uh, um, involved Vietnamese uh, boat people uh, that left the country after the fall of Saigon and um, went to Australia. And uh, as he points out in the film, um, over many, many, many thousands Hundreds of thousands of people uh, died on this journey uh, out to get out of Vietnam. And it's a creative film because it's set in a sewing factory. And you have to take a suspension of belief in a way. You have to pretend you're watching a boat when it's actually filmed in a sewing factory. And it's um, the device is um, this... Uh, older woman is thinking back on her days on the boat when she was a kid and reflecting on it. And the film is in English with uh, Vietnamese subtitles. And he explains why he uses English in the interview. So let's go to our interview with Kwa uh, Do, uh, this uh, amazing filmmaker from Sydney, uh, as we uh, continue this edition of Subversity. Film. We asked him why he made this film. The reason why uh, I made Mother Fish is because uh, I come from Australia, and uh, at the moment in Australia, in the last few years, there has been a lot of refugees who have fled their countries uh, by boat, and there is a lot of hysteria and fear against refugees in Australia at the moment. So I thought it'd be great to make a film to counter against these fears and to uh, essentially. Add, add a bit of compassion and sympathy uh, into the story and for the plight of refugees. And these are refugees uh, from where? So at the moment, uh, these are refugees 
coming to Australia from Sri Lanka, Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, they've travelled to Indonesia. I mean, on Ind- from Indonesia, uh, they've got onto a boat to travel towards Australia. And, uh, and many of these refugees have had to flee uh, their countries uh, because their lives have been at risk. I was quite impressed by the film because it is so original. It's very creative. And I've never seen... You have to have a leap of faith uh, to imagine a sewing a factory, basically, uh, or part of a factory... Uh, being reconverted to uh, like a ship in a storm even and uh, with pirates running over and uh, so uh, I understand it's derived from a play but in the play you didn't use this setting no not at all Uh, we we did do a play uh, well and truly before we did a film but the play was very naturalistic it was entirely different uh, to the film itself Uh, the film itself was inspired by my research uh, into the story when I met a lady who was telling me about her experiences and this is a lady who works in a sewing factory and she was telling me that throughout her life sewing in a factory often when she was sitting down and sewing at a machine she would relive her boat trip in her mind and she would see this boat trip play out in front of her eyes we film where we go into her mind as she relives one of these boat trip experiences and we see that in front of our eyes where the sewing machines become the boats and the present and the past merge together. And you use English in the film uh, mostly f- for the dialogue between the people on the boat. Um, why was that? Yeah, we used English in this film because I thought to myself uh, that this film is set entirely within a woman's memory. And when I think of my memories at the moment, I think of the memories in English. I used to think and speak Vietnamese uh, when I first arrived in Australia. Uh, but now, after being here for, you know, being in Australia for 30 years, I still speak Vietnamese, but I think in English and my memories are in English. So I thought it would be most accurate to portray the events of the film in English. Uh, you, were you born in Australia? I was born in Vietnam, but I left uh, Vietnam when I was just under two years old. I too was uh, a uh, refugee who fled on a boat with my family. Did your family's recollection, or did they talk to you about what happened? Yeah, my family talks about what happens, what happened all the time. Absolutely, yeah. It's one of those stories that uh, every time we have a family dinner, towards the end of a dinner, uh, someone invariably talks about uh, our refugee boat trip experiences. Wow. So that. I think that's a little bit different from some other uh, families where they just don't want to talk about it. Yeah, there are some families that find it very hard to talk about it and can only open up about their experiences after all this time, after 20, 30 years. Uh, But my family is one where we've been reminded constantly as we grew up of what our parents went through in order to get to Australia and in order to, to make a new life for themselves and to give their children a better future. I know in the in the film you show the Thai uh, authorities uh, is pushing the the crew back out to sea, uh, and that's that's what happened, right, really, right? That is what happened uh, in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, for a while there, both Thailand and Malaysia had a pushback policy, and uh, so in the film itself, we actually, in order to write this scene, scene, I spoke to a number of people who experienced this themselves, uh, where their boat was 
pulled out to sea were the uh, Thai police would basically point guns at them and force them back onto their boats and then the boats would be towed back out to sea. Was the reason the, the dialogue in Thai wasn't uh, subtitled was because you wanted to give the impression or the feeling that the people on the boat felt that they didn't understand what was going on? Absolutely. The, the Thai police spoke in Thai because uh, we wanted her memory to be truthful and accurate. So once again, um, yeah, we, we, she at the time wouldn't have a clue what they were saying. So we thought that would be most accurate for the film. I thought this was the first time I've read something where it shows the uh, even the conflict between people on a boat, uh, the intergenerational and between the siblings even. Um, how, how how did you come around to uh, depict that? Yeah, there is, a, there is a lot of conflict in the film within both intergenerational conflict between an uncle who's much older and two young sisters who are in their teens uh, and... I wrote that basically uh, from both experience, uh, sort of you know, dealing with my own uncles and, and so forth, and, and knowing that the sort of conflicts that we'll have if we were trapped in a, in a small space for weeks on end, uh, as well as from talking to others uh, who left by boat with those who are older than them and the fears they face and the arguments they had and so forth. So a lot of this was, was based on, on stories that, that were told to me. It seems very uh, realistic, actually. It seems more authentic because a lot of the narratives that I've read, and I, we have this huge collection at UC Irvine of artwork and publications from the camps in Hong Kong and some other camps, but uh, it seems a lot of it is uh, political. You know, it's very it's rhetorical. It's about, um, it's, a blat- it's kind of almost uh, blatantly political, uh, but there was, some of it seems to be, too rhetorical and uh, typical and expected whereas your film brings out things that you just don't you know you don't realize and people don't think of it that way yeah in our film we really focused on the small moments you know the moments that uh, that people leave out of other films so to speak you know the the small little arguments that the girls may have and and just uh, because I think when I was talking to people and about their boat trip experiences uh, what I realized was that you know, for, for a lot of these people, I mean, this, this experience was, I mean, entirely a foreign experience. And they were put into situations that they could never imagine that they were in. And some of the arguments and discussion that they had are, are actually really, really banal or, or really day-to-day sort of arguments. They're not grand rhetorical statements about the war and about, you know, communism, why had to flee. You know, people don't talk about that on a day-to-day basis. They talk about little things like, how come mum gave you a dress and didn't give me a dress? You now that the sister spoke about. And, and I found these small moments really beautiful. It's almost, almost trivial, but then it's actually very authentic. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's almost trivial, but at the same time, it's trivial, but it, it brings you into their world in, in, a, in a way where you understand exactly where they're coming from because you relate to them and, and, and you believe them. And you actually put, it seems you foreground the, the girls' stories. Uh, I mean, they are the, the key people in this uh, boat ride. And, uh, and you seldom see, I know in uh, Journey from the Four, uh, Ham Chang's uh, film about the uh, exodus from Vietnam, uh, it's seen through the eyes of a boy, but uh, it doesn't foreground the kids as much. 
Yeah, so uh, in our one we certainly uh, focus a lot on the relationship between two young sisters in their teens and uh, it's very much seen through their eyes because we wanted a, a trip that uh, I suppose you know, seen through the eyes of someone who doesn't know anything about this trip, doesn't know what to expect, doesn't know where they're going. So that in itself would be much more truthful to an audience who, watching this film, also doesn't know where it's going, doesn't know what's taking place, and all the events happen to them. They're not in control of their surroundings, and they're not in control of their destiny. In a lot of films, and in traditional Hollywood film structure and, and, and screenwriting structure, it's about a hero who, who goes out there, overcomes challenges, and achieves a certain goal. In Mother Fish, our film, it's almost the antithesis of that. It's the opposite of that, in that we have heroes who are in no control of their fate. They are completely in a situation where events happen to them. And one event happens after another after another. And I think... What I realised was that this is what was truthful to a lot of people who had to flee Vietnam on a boat. They were put into situations where things happened to them and they were in no control of their destiny. There, there were certain scenes that you had to do in sequence, right? You couldn't have the rain first because uh, it would get everything wet. So how did you uh, space that out? We uh, shot the entire film in sequence, in order. Very rarely does that happen these days in the, in the world of editing, but uh, our film, Motherfish, was actually shot entirely sequentially in order. So was, uh, was it somebody you knew who had this, fishing uh, this uh, sewing factory? We created the sewing factory from scratch. So basically uh, we rented out an empty factory and then we, we borrowed and hired sewing machines and we dressed it up and then created this factory from scratch. You also depicted some really uh, very dark, uh, stark uh, scenes in the film, uh, especially the, the pirates uh, raping somebody, uh, raping the sister, one of the sisters. Um, was that, um, was how, how did you uh, plan to do that and how, how did that come out? Yeah, in the film there is a, a rape scene where, where the pirates do rape one of the sisters. Uh, and that was tough. It was very hard, but it's a scene that if anyone knows anything about the, the boat trip story, it's a scene that is essential because that happened so much in, on so many trips, and the scars last forever. So we realised that we had to go there. We, we have to have that scene in the film, but we did it in a way where, where I guess we put the audience into the shoes of the character and we shot it from angles where we don't know what's going to happen and all of a sudden it comes out of nowhere and it's brutal and it's fast and it's violent and we very much see it through the eyes of the younger sister and when she pulls a cloth over her eyes because she can't see it anymore we too close our eyes at the same time as the audience she's trying to peek she's trying to peek out uh, before that yeah she's trying to peek out and see what's happening uh, but then it comes to a point where she knows what's going to happen and she can't see it anymore. And that's when she shuts her eyes and we shut our eyes with her. And you also, you, you, you said that in the Q&A, you said that there was this uh, reference to cannibalism. Uh, I kind of maybe missed that, although uh, what happened there? Yes, I mean, obviously, uh, we allude to references. Uh, like on a lot of trips, people 
even if I didn't partake in cannibalism, and a lot of boats didn't, you know, it was only uh, quite a, a few rare ones that did, uh, but it was something which, when you get into desperate situations, you have to consider. And, and I think that um, for, for certainly for some of the quite well-known boat trip stories, uh, they do involve uh, potential cannibalism. And so in our movie as well, we, we consider it and um, we, we leave it open-ended. Yeah, and there's some uh, kind of post, uh, post-trauma kind of thing. When uh, she's living in Australia, she goes past a butcher shop and there's some scenes about that. Yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, she lives in Australia and then she walks past the butcher shop and, and it just brings her back and it, it makes her think of, uh, think of, of, of that episode of her life. And, and we don't say why, you know, we just have that as, as an image and some people will read certain things into it and some don't. I think the thing with Mother Fish is that we don't explain everything. Yeah, it's very much a film which challenges the audience. Um, but almost every scene has... Uh, has dual layers to it and you can read it in whichever way you like even the whole memory itself we have some audiences wondering whether that truthfully is her memory or is that a recreation of her memory the fact that the memory is in English that itself is a recreation so I think essentially for a lot of survivors memory of traumatic experiences is tough and so when they remember it they remember certain events more than others they, they tend to distort their memories, the present, fuses of the past. All these things occur simultaneously. And so for our film, we really wanted to explore that and also have all that appear simultaneously. We didn't want to explain everything to the audience every step of the way. Yeah, at, on this campus, there's a professor who specializes in recovered memory. And he's actually, she's actually quite skeptical of it because you can ask, you know, you can put leading questions and then people will remember things a certain way when it really may not have happened. So you're right that memory is, 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 could be a kind of mixture of things. Uh, but I was uh, I wondering if you saw the other film uh, uh, and, uh, about that kid, uh, the five-year-old kid, six-year-old kid. And that was an imaginary thing about a blind Vietnamese kid in, uh, in Montreal. And the director was saying that that was... Uh, trying to go into the mind of this kid and before before he gets schooled and gets to think rationally. And so in a way, the two films are very similar in the way they mix uh, fiction with non-fiction in a way, uh, creating, uh, you know, you, you, in theory, this could be a documentary, but it's not. It's a dramatization of something that happened, but there's elements of fiction and non-fiction in there. Yeah, I guess in theory, but I suppose our film is as far away from a documentary as you can yeah, get. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's uh, I mean, the film is, is not even realistic. It's surrealistic. Mm. You know, yeah. it is like, uh, I, I remember whilst we were making it, I was referencing a, a, a Salvador Dali painting, for example, where, where you're playing with time and space and memory and reality all together. And so the film itself is, uh, is very surrealistic. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, how, how, how does it relate to the, your earlier project that was shown here uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Foodie, uh, Foodie Legends. Legends, about the band of kids who are uh, young, uh, young, young people, on this, they were living on the street basically, uh, or hanging out on the street, and uh, they, you recruit them, you give them, you, you, you had been working with them before and then you got them. Yes, uh, that was the Finnish people. 
So Footy Legends is the one, the sports drama, the sports... What's drama, the other one? The finished people. Oh, yeah, okay. So I've got confused there, too. Yeah. Uh, so how does that relate to your earlier projects, I guess? Uh, Mother Fish is very different to my earlier projects. Uh, it's a film which is, uh, which is the most challenging one for the audience that I've yet made. Uh, and it's a film which, in some ways, I, I see it as a, as a, uh, as an extension of of my career as a filmmaker. In the sense that, uh, as a filmmaker, as an artist, uh, you respond in the moment, and you are responding to what is most necessary at the time. And uh, for myself, you know, Mother Fish was a direct reaction against uh, the fear against refugees that was taking place in Australia. And uh, this, for me, was a uh, was was a byproduct of that reaction, uh, and and that's why I wanted to make it at the time. I've since made another film, which will have its world premiere at the Melbourne International Film Festival, uh, and uh, certainly the new the new film is uh, completely different again. Uh, it's a romantic drama this time. What's the title? Uh, the title currently is Falling for Sahara, and it is a film starring an entire cast of Africans, and set in. Uh, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, the uh, earlier settings were at Perth, was it? Or was there another city? Uh, and your other films, uh, were they set in a different city? Yeah, my other films were set mainly in Sydney. Oh, Sydney. It was in Sydney. The, uh, how, what kind of research did you do for this? Uh, I noticed that um, you, you, you mentioned the number from the UN uh, Human uh, uh, Refugee uh, uh, Council, I guess, uh, Commission and how many uh, people had fled Vietnam, uh, one and a half million. And I know a lot of people were struck by that number, that uh, uh, 60,000, is it 60,000 or 600,000? 60,000 died, uh, 600,000 600, uh, were missing, uh, didn't make it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite, um, quite staggering numbers when you look at it. And the numbers who fled and, and those who made it and those who didn't make it. And a lot of people don't realise how big these numbers actually are. They're staggering. So, so before the film itself, we did a lot of research, and, and we had people from the boat, people archives back home in Australia, and and uh, you know contacts with the UNHCR and, and so forth. And and we we really um, even on set itself, you know, we had boat trip survivors and so on who were were really just influential in the way we told this story. Yeah, I can remember coming across a book uh, by. Um one of the Australian papers uh, called The Boat People it was a paperback, and I found it in a used bookstore. And it actually gave the whole uh, whole narrative of what happened. Uh, maybe it was based on stories that came out in the uh, Australian papers at the time. But it's, you know, it's, it's receded from memory, I think. So was that why you wanted to... Uh, was there any uh, coverage of the anniversary uh, of the boat people exodus uh, in Australia this time? So was there any coverage of the exodus? Yeah, I mean of the uh, anniversary of the, you know, 30, 40 years later, uh, did, uh, did the papers try to look back at it? Yes, yeah, certainly uh, in Australia, uh, the 35th anniversary of you know, the end of the Vietnam War and the first arrival of Vietnamese refugees in Australia was a... Uh, a period of celebration for the Vietnamese community in Australia. They certainly had events and functions and fundraisers and and uh, the uh, local newspapers did articles celebrating 35 years since the arrival of the first Vietnamese refugees in Australia. Do you, do you see that Australia was doing more than other countries in accepting 
refugees at the time? Um, I don't know if they did more than other countries, but Australia certainly uh, did a lot to, uh, to help resettle refugees in, uh, from Vietnam. And, uh, and I think the uh, Vietnamese Australians living in Australia at the moment are certainly making a contribution to Australian society, a strong one. Do, do, are people trying to um, uh, relate to, I mean, learn the language, uh, the younger people, or uh, are they all become uh, Australian or whatever? Uh, I mean, they're all Australian, but how, have they sought ways to uh, reclaim their heritage? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, Vietnamese Australians uh, do uh, seek out ways to reclaim their heritage, link up with... Uh, with their Vietnamese culture, uh, there's Vietnamese language classes, uh, there's Vietnamese Student Association, there's, there's uh, Catholic youth groups, Buddhist youth groups, groups which uh, do all they can to try and link up Vietnamese Australian youth with their culture so that they can maintain their culture and pass that on to the next generation. Well, you started off, did you start off as a community worker uh, before? Uh, prior to working in film, I wasn't a community worker, but I was working as a volunteer at the same time as, uh, as uh, studying law at uh, Sydney University. I was uh, working as a volunteer in Western Sydney, working with young people from at-risk backgrounds. Did you uh, continue with the law studies? No, I, uh, I stopped my law studies to pursue a career in filmmaking and uh, theatre and the arts. So do you see, I, I know we just left a panel uh, uh, where you were on, where you talked, with, uh, there was a lot of talk about um, uh, Hollywood and about making money, and uh, and you mentioned that it's hard for Australian films to make it in in US unless they have a kind of Hollywood connection. Um, do you, do you see yourself as doing films here? Uh, maybe one day I might uh, come to Hollywood and come to America and make films, uh, but certainly in the near future, I'm really enjoying the uh, the whole. Uh, process of making films and television and theatre back home in Australia and uh, the uh, many wonderful opportunities which uh, have arisen uh, since my career in the film, in film and the arts has begun. Do you see yourself more as an art house filmmaker? Uh, certainly not. Uh, I, uh, I don't think, uh, I think that if I was to make only films such as Mother Fishton, I certainly am an art house filmmaker, but a film such as Footy Legends uh, which was a sports comedy which was released on 110 screens back home in Australia, is as far off from an art house film as you can get. So you can switch back and forth? Absolutely, yeah, and it's uh, very much enjoyable to do so. Do you, uh, how do you live then? Do you, yeah, do you, uh, do you, um, do you make any money from these films? I mean... Yeah, I mean, in, in Australia, certainly it's very different to, to here. Um, it's, you know, yeah. You make your films, you get paid a wage to make them, and uh, it's not like in America where you, uh, where you know, you've got to sort of put your budgets together. Um, in Australia, you know, you uh, you get paid out of a budget for whatever project you're doing, and uh, once you finish one, you move on to the next one. So there's a, like a very supportive film council or some that supports filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funded by both you know film councils as well as um, distributors and exhibitors and television stations. You know, you, you sell off your rights before you make the film, so that itself uh, pays for your wage. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. So that was our interview with Quado, uh, Australian filmmaker um, who was here for the Vietnamese International Film Festival. Uh, uh, his film was a stock uh, portrayal of uh, an imagined uh, boat journey uh, reflecting memories of uh, somebody he talked to.
who uh, uh, where he uh, actually created a play based on this, and then he um, put the setting uh, in a sewing factory as this um, woman recalls that her days on a boat. Uh, what is really fascinating about the story is the conflict between the sisters as well as the other people on the f- on the boat, which is something you really uh, see, and I've never seen on the screen this kind of portrayal. Um, so here's that creative uh, director, of, uh, Vietnamese Australian director, Quado, um, from Australia, um, a person with a a director with a conscience actually uh, as he said in the interview he was provoked to make this film uh, to resist the demonization of refugees that uh, currently exists uh, in um, Australia and so that was uh, his his attempt to do uh, something about it um, we're going to go switch next to another uh, not a film but another portrayal that is depicted in the film, actually, um, that's coming up at the Vietnamese International Film Festival that's ongoing uh, at UC Irvine and uh, at um, UCLA and Bowers Museum this coming, starting Thursday again. Um, And um, the festival includes many films from Vietnam and the Vietnamese diaspora. And uh, one of them is uh, Don't Look Back, which is a film based on the Oedipus uh, myth and um, I'll take off of that. And the director is uh, Nguyen Vo Nguyen Min and he's also the director of uh, Buffalo Boy and he was on this show earlier uh, talking about, uh, a few years ago, talking about his uh, successful film Buffalo Boy about uh, buffalo herders in Vietnam. Uh, This one is a ghost story. And it's set. Uh, it's a uh, it show. It's screen. It's set to screen on Saturday, April sixteenth, uh, from four to five thirty at Humanities Gateway, ten seventy, at UC Irvine. And then later that evening, uh, another film by a different director, Min Duc Nguyen, uh, called Touch, is a story about um, a relationship between a, a nail salon worker a Vietnamese nail salon worker um, who falls for this uh, Caucasian uh, client. And um, so that film is a depiction of uh, the lives of uh, nail salon workers as well as their clients. Um, and it's set in Los Angeles. And, um, and that film uh, screens at 7.30 at Humanities Instructional Building 100 on, also on Saturday. April 16th. Uh, to continue this edition of Subverse um, Day, we will uh, air a related uh, topic, uh, the chemical hazards uh, of hair salons. Um, this is a report from the National Radio Project um, Making Contact Program, and it's a um, critique of the chemicalization, actually, or the chemicals that are used in most of these, uh, or many of these uh, nail salons, uh, which may have prolonged effect, health hazards, uh, effects of hazardous uh, health uh, on the workers as they sit in this uh, hair salon all day uh, for months uh, at a time. And so we'll be um, going to that uh, 
program shortly. You're listening to Subversity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. So this program is called The Toxic Truth About Hair Salons. This week on Making Contact. We need to phase out these chemicals now rather than waiting for research to show the dead bodies. If you've ever stepped into a nail salon, you know the smell, that chemical cocktail that hits you like an invisible wall. While consumers may tolerate it during a short visit, the nail salon workers find themselves stewing in a toxic bubble for years. I was working with my client and I feel my face numb and I said to call ambulance. On this edition, we take a look at the health impacts of chemical exposure, the shoddy regulation of cosmetics, and the movement towards greener nail salons. I'm Pauline Bartoloni. And I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. It's Wednesday morning at Asian Health Services in downtown Oakland, California. About 20 Vietnamese-speaking patients are gathered around a conference room table. The topic of conversation skips around from health care to spotting hypodermic needles on the street to how to fill out a survey. Facilitator Alicia Tran finds a way to make the mundane entertaining. Tran is a community health advocate at AHS. She runs this patient leadership council every week. Recently, nail salons have been a hot topic. Most of the time I'm talking about a toxin, about wearing masks if you uh, work in a nail salon because you work in a nail salon uh, long hours. Talking about clean products and I'm talking about ventilation. You need a break, too. Tran speaks about nail salons from first-hand experience. During her career as a manicurist, she worked in four different salons. She had her share of strange side effects on the job. One day, I was working with uh, my client, and I feel my face numb. I feel like a numbness on my finger. Like I hold the customer hand. The way I hold like this, I cannot close it, I cannot open it. I sweat too, sweat, sweat a lot. And I was talking with client and I said, call ambulance. The doctor at the emergency room told her she was anemic. Then two weeks later, she had another episode on the job. Something, exactly something. Again, you know, client call ambulance again and come to emergency room again. And luckily, I, I met the same doctor. He saw me and he said, what's going on? And I told, told him something. And then he asked me, what kind of job you working? And I said, I'm working for nail salon. I have my own nail salon. And then he said, I think you should quit your job. And that's exactly what Tran did, quit working at salons. It didn't take long before she was working as a health advocate, serving mostly the Vietnamese-speaking community. 
Here in Oakland, the Vietnamese community is both newer to the U.S. and lower income than their counterparts in California, according to a group called Viet Unity. About two-thirds of nail salon workers in the state are Vietnamese, two-thirds. And the industry is booming nationwide. As the number of salons has more than tripled in the past decade, so has the number of workers, many of them women of reproductive age. Each one of these nail salons is loaded with chemical compounds that are hard to even pronounce, dibutyl phthalate, toluene, and formaldehyde, to name a few. Those three ingredients are known as the toxic trio. The toxic trio were three compounds that got the most attention because people felt like these had the strongest health effects at this point. And it's really this idea that it's what they want to start off highlighting. It's definitely not the end. You know, getting rid of these three may not be enough. Dr. Tu Quach is an epidemiologist with the Cancer Prevention Institute of California. She says some of the chemicals in nail salon supplies, such as polishes and cleaning agents, have proven links to some pretty gnarly health effects. Formaldehyde has been deemed a known carcinogen, so there is enough evidence from animal studies and some human health studies that says that this compound causes cancer in humans, and so we want to be careful when it is in use. And it's often in use mostly in disinfectants in the form of formalin. The second compound has been the uh, dibutophthalate. Dibuto is the form that is found in cosmetic products. And that one has been the focus when Europe took this on because of a lot of the reproductive links. There's been concerns that it affects sperm quality. There's been concerns that it may affect the um, fetus because it can pass through the placental barrier. So particularly for women who are pregnant and exposed to this, this is a great concern. Toluene is a solvent and is found a lot in the nail polish. And there's been some links to reproductive health as well, as well as it affecting the endocrine system. While there is science that proves the toxic effect of these chemicals on animals and humans, there aren't as many studies done on workers who are exposed to them every day. So Dr. Quach and others decided to look at the prevalence of breast cancer among nail salon workers in California. They matched the names of the California Cancer Registry to the names of licensed manicurists in the state. The result was not one that advocates perhaps expected to see. Dr. Quach again. We did not find any increases in cancer at the time, but one of the issues that we knew going in was that the workforce was fairly young, and the fact that they hadn't been in that workforce for more than 10 years or so, and with cancer, it actually takes a long time to develop. So we knew that that were going to be two of the biggest limitations for us. The study and its limitations shows how hard it is to prove impact on a population, such as nail salon workers, from a certain chemical. But that doesn't mean there isn't impact. Disease takes a long time to develop. Workers might have a multitude of exposures, and epidemiological studies need a large population. Regardless, Dr. Quash sees that cancer study as a first step in monitoring this workforce. Plus, cancer is just one of the many health outcomes they're concerned about. However, Dr. Quach says the government should not wait before regulating toxins in cosmetic products. 
we need to phase out these chemicals now rather than waiting for research to show the dead bodies. While we're waiting for the research evidence, which often takes so long when it comes to epidemiology and you know population health science, we may want to phase this out now to protect the population before it becomes too late. And it's particularly hard on a population that's been so invisible for so long. And the Vietnamese population dominating this workforce is of greater concern because they've had a different history of exposures coming from Vietnam, having been exposed to a lot of um, chemical warfares during the Vietnam War is of great interest for us. And at the same time, it's an immigrant population in the U.S. who can, may not be able to vocalize a lot of their health concerns without the help of, of community advocates in there. So there's a lot of um, pieces into this that makes us say, why wait? Some nail salon workers and their advocates aren't waiting to work for change. The stories about fellow workers are enough to motivate them. About those who have suffered from cancer, respiratory problems, skin rashes, and chronic headaches. 61-year-old Lam Lay knows some of those symptoms all too well. In the lobby of Asian Health Services in downtown Oakland, Lay is accompanied by Mai Tong, her interpreter and health advocate. After surviving the Vietnam War and living in refugee camps, Lei came to the U.S. in the mid-80s. When she came here, she was a little bit older and her English not so good, so she thinks that doing, um, like being a manicurist is um, pretty okay for her. You know, she can make a living, and but she knows that, you know, the chemicals probably won't be too good for her health. Lay's had her share of health battles, a thyroid condition, asthma, and skin rashes. She had breast cancer, too, and beat it twice. Lay doesn't know for sure if her symptoms were caused by her chemical exposure at the salon. She just remembers the constant headaches, the trouble breathing, and the emergency room visits. By the time she was diagnosed with cancer, her medical file was thick. Yeah, and now she's like, she's very scared to even go into nail salons. Just seeing it makes her scared. <laughs> Despite her hardships, Lay's quick to smile and to speak up. She's here at Asian Health Services, not as a patient, but as an advocate. She's waiting for other nail salon workers before going to a special EPA hearing on environmental justice. She wanted to ask um, Congresswoman Lee and Administrator Jackson to improve the conditions for the nail salon's worker. At the Oakland Federal Building, Lam Lei and Mai Tong prepare her statement for Barbara Lee as they waited for the EPA town hall to start. Lei had to turn her two-page testimony into one question that fit on a small index card. Then Phaedra Ellis Lampkins of Green for All read all the questions to the representatives. So you can make as many people as possible get their questions answered. You can give them to the team at the front. But at this town hall hearing, packed with local leaders in the environmental justice movement, not everyone felt heard. One lady who says she lives on top of a toxic waste dump in San Francisco stood up and disrupted the meeting. 
she pointed out her loved one with cancer. We've got communities over here where there are a large number of black people that are dying, and there is not a single black cyborg. The calls for environmental justice were loud, and there were many of them. Lamley sat patiently through the two-hour meeting, watching quietly with interest. But the meeting came to an end without her giving testimony directly to the EPA, without her question being heard. Is she, is she disappointed that she can't speak at the podium? Cô cảm thấy hơi là thất vọng tại vì cô không thể nói trước những cái người cái đại diện cấp huyện. Lay is working with the California Healthy Nail Collaborative to push for more government regulation of cosmetics, more research, and market pressure to force salons to change the chemical ingredients. Currently, the Food and Drug Administration regulates cosmetics, but that may be an overstatement. We don't have a ban on known or highly suspected carcinogens, you know, genetic mutagens, etc., in cosmetics, you know, which is pretty alarming. Jamie Silverberger is director of programs and policy at Women's Voices for the Earth. The federal law that governs the cosmetics industry is only two and a half pages long, and it hasn't been updated in 70 years. Because of this, and, and, and because the law is so weak, companies can use ingredients that are known to cause cancer or reproductive harm, and it's, it's perfectly legal for them to do that. There is a cosmetics industry review panel, Silberberger explains, but it's only evaluated 11% of the more than 12,000 chemicals used in cosmetics. What's more, she says, the law requiring disclosure of ingredients on cosmetic retail products does not apply to items used in the salons. Nail salon products are not required to be fully labeled. If you buy a bottle of nail polish, at a retail store, you'll see on the bottom there's a full list of the ingredients in that nail polish, and that's required by federal law. But with salon products, there's a loophole, and there's no requirement for salon products to be labeled. So nail salon workers, they don't know what they're being exposed to. Groups like the National Healthy Nail Salon Alliance are advocating for more worker protections, not just chemical policy reform. They want change in the permissible exposure limits by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Silverberger again. Those limits have serious limitations. The standard, first of all, the standards were created in the 1960s for an industrial setting, and the intention of that was to protect against like acute exposures. But these permissible exposure limits, or we call them PELs, they don't take into consideration the effects of a combination of multiple chemicals over the long term, or the chronic health effects of exposure, such as asthma, cancer, or reproductive harm. Nail salons are entirely different. It's an entirely different environment. And the other issue with nail salons is that they're oftentimes poorly ventilated. So these chemicals that are being released aren't properly ventilated to the outside, and so that increases their exposure to these harmful chemicals. U.S. legislation around chemicals in cosmetics and around toxic products in general is a sharp contrast from the laws and the books in the European Union. To date, only about 10 chemicals found in cosmetics have been banned in the United States. Europe, on the other hand, has banned some 1,000. Silverberger calls the European Union's laws around toxic products precautionary an approach the United States is not subscribing to. 
but there is change brewing on the horizon. The Safe Cosmetics Act was introduced in 2010. It would be a tremendous victory if we were able to pass this law. One, it bans the use of known carcinogens, genetic mutagens, and reproductive toxins. It also requires pre-market safety assessments of all salon and professional use product ingredients, and it does establish FDA requirements for substantiating the safety of ingredients. It requires full product ingredient lists on labels and websites, so that would close that loophole that allows salon products to go unlabeled. The state of California has already passed light cosmetic safety legislation, but groups are still waiting for more comprehensive national reform to pass. While lawmakers leave nail salon workers to become canaries in the coal mine, organizations are finding other ways to educate and empower them. Alicia Tran hopes the health education she does leaks out to the Vietnamese-speaking nail salon workers. We need their participation. They need their spirit. We need them to spread the news. Lam Le was at that day's patient leadership council, looking bright in a blazer jacket, dangly earrings, and a big smile. When she tells her story, Le's voice has power, even through the words of an interpreter. She wants to speak out and talk about this issue so other people and manicures won't have the same problem like her. And you know, she's like, other people, they might be quiet, but not me. I want to speak out about it. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. We now return to The Toxic Truth About Nail Salons. Those nail salon workers and advocates you just heard from are pushing hard to change public policy around exposure to toxic chemicals. But there's also a movement coming from businesses themselves to make the salons greener and safer for workers and consumers. Correspondent Momo Chang has more. It's a Tuesday afternoon in early fall at Isabella Nail Bar, a nail salon in an upscale shopping district in Oakland, California. Yuan Nguyen, the owner of the salon, is busy sweeping the floor while workers are giving clients pedicures. Isabella Nail Bar is not like most nail salons. Isabella is a self-described green salon. They don't do acrylic nails, and try to use less toxic polishes. When I first came to this country, my uh, sponsor took me to the nail salon to have her nail done and give me some treatment. And while I was waiting for her to have that 
the thing drilling on her hand, and I said, "What happened to you? Why you have to have that metal filer that on your nail?" In and then she said. Oh, this is how it is, honey. It's over here. This is America. So I said, why is it like that? Because in my country, we don't use that tool to grind on your nail and put all this fun stuff that had the smell on. So still that in the back of my mind, and then I said, this must be something better than this. Win came to this country in 1990 as a refugee from Vietnam and studied chemistry at California State University. She worked as an engineer in the semiconductor industry for more than a decade. Then she switched careers and opened her salon in 2008. So here I am opening this, um, thinking that um, with the two driving force behind, the first thing is about this lovely young lady that working day in and out on this chemical. What you know, I can do about it, and also the client. Why having the beautiful treatment, relaxing, but not to worry about all this toxic chemical? Now, distrustful of standard nail salon products and the health impacts she fears they may cause, Win is careful not to use nail polishes that contain the so-called toxic trio. The toxic trio of chemicals are formaldehyde, toluene, and dibutyl phthalate, which are linked to cancer, birth defects. Miscarriages and other health problems. She avoids acrylic nails. One ingredient found in acrylic nails is MMA or methyl methacrylate, which the FDA calls a poisonous ingredient. The application of the nails creates dust that gets inhaled, and removal often requires soaking in acetone, a toxic ingredient linked to miscarriages. Sarah Vung, a 23-year-old worker at Isabella Nail Bar and a mother of a newborn, says that the products used here are less harsh. Before working here, she did acrylic nails. The other salon they have the acrylic, and when you just enter the enter the door, you already smell the primer and also the powder, the liquid. It's very very strong. Vung's relative by marriage died of colon and uterine cancer in her 30s. She had worked in a nail salon doing mostly acrylic nails for five years. Vung believes it's not healthy to work with these products. Because after I hear about my um, brother-in-law's sister, it just kind of gave me a feeling the acrylic is not safety for my health, and especially every time when I hold a primer up. I mean, I just have to wear a mask for that. So far, it seems that Wynn's efforts have paid off. A state air quality report of Isabella Nailbar in 2010 found that chemical levels in her salon are well below regulated limits. Most of the chemicals detected comprise just one percent of Cal OSHA's permissible levels. However, there were still many chemicals present in the salon, and chemical levels were higher there than in the air just outside of her shop. Win says it's a constant challenge to make sure the vendors who are supplying the polishes and remover are accurate about what they're sending to her shop. She has to be vigilant and do a lot of her own research for safer products. Why researching it? I found out that so many vendor out there. Throw in the product on the market with no label, no label at all that describe what chemical, what ingredient, what health 
problem that it may cause just a big container with empty, nothing on it. So that took me about six weeks to research into it, to find out just the right polish removal to use. A manicure-pedicure at her salon costs $39 and a regular manicure $16. The cost is higher than salons elsewhere in Oakland. But she's been able to maintain a steady base of customers who appreciate the spa-like treatment, clean foot baths, and greener products. Jill Adams started coming to Isabella Nail Bar soon after it opened in 2008. Perhaps you are spending a few more dollars, but if you think about what you're supporting, what you're perpetuating, and what you're not perpetuating and not being compliant in with those extra dollars, it's well worth every penny. While Wynn says it didn't cost her more to open a greener nail salon, health-conscious salons do face higher costs. Zoya, the nail polish line that Wynn mostly uses, costs twice as much as some less expensive polishes. And sometimes being greener means improving air quality by installing ventilation systems, which is another cost. While Wynn is an individual striving to make changes in the nail salon world, a recent policy attempts to help other salons make the change to greener and healthier practices. San Francisco recently passed an ordinance that recognizes nail salons using polishes without the toxic trio of chemicals. San Francisco Board of Supervisor President David Chu authored the ordinance called the Healthy Nail Salon Recognition Program. He says there are an estimated 200 nail salons in San Francisco and 1,800 people who work in them. At this time, it's estimated that over 70% of nail salon workers are immigrant women. Uh, these women are often of childbearing age with limited English skills who spend over 10 hours a day being exposed to toxic chemicals and nail polish, and they are generally making less than $20,000 a year. And from my perspective, I think these immigrant workers shouldn't have to put their health at risk to make a living. It's my hope that this is a program that will hopefully move nail salons from the toxic trio to something that is greener and healthier. Although the ordinance doesn't provide monetary support for converting businesses to healthier practices, Chu hopes that it will encourage nail salons to phase out the polishes that include the toxic trio of chemicals. A group of nonprofits and industry workers called the California Healthy Nail Salon Collaborative will do outreach to the salons, encouraging them to take part in this voluntary program. The city will provide them with um, recognition of the fact that they are a healthy nail salon so that they will be able to have marketing materials in their windows, uh, in their establishments to signal to customers that the nail salon that you're entering is one that does not use the toxic trio. And we're hoping that with this very light government encouragement that this will uh, move nail salons in the right direction. Nail salons like Wynn's Isabella Nail Bar already avoid the toxic trio. Wynn hopes to see more government support for green salons. She opened hers with her own money, but says what's most important is the desire to change, which begins with education. In my heart, I dream no more than five years from now will be so many similar Isabella on the street because... It's just the matter of people resistant to change. The first thing is education. 
first and foremost. And then the prophet. Because when you get that in their mind, that's five, ten years from now, all this money you're making is not going to outweigh the risk of having cancer, losing your baby, or have a deformed baby. That message needs to get out. So I think to start, I think we have to start from the bottom, which is education. For Making Contact, I'm Momo Chang in Oakland, California. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To see videos of nail salon advocates and workers in action, log on to our website, radioproject.org. Special thanks to all of our supporters, to As You So's Environmental Enforcement Fund, and to Spot Us for helping us crowdfund this story. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736 or check out our website at radioproject.org to get a podcast, download past shows, or help make a difference by supporting our work. Lisa Rudman is our Executive Director, Khan Pham, Associate Director, Pauline Bartoloni, Producer and Online Editor, Kyun Jin Lee, Producer, Carl Jagbandan Singh, Volunteer Coordinator, Sean Array and Courtney Supple, production interns, and Dan Turner, Ron Rucker, Alton Bird, Rachel Kozlowski, Andrew Bevington, and Marie Choi, volunteers. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Thanks for listening for, to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. So today we are uh, aired an interview with Quado, the Australian Vietnamese uh, director of Mother Fish, a chronicle of uh, a dramatization of uh, the refugee exodus from the 70s and 80s uh, and 90s to Australia and other countries. Uh, and the film um, shows a setting uh, in a f- sewing factory based on recollections um, of a survivor of this boat trip. And then later we, uh, uh, in the second half of the program, we aired a uh, interview or a talk actually, a program, sorry, a report on the hazards, the toxic hazards of nail salons uh, uh, in uh, line with this um, film that's called uh, Touch. That's a romantic look at uh, a relationship uh, sparked by a nail salon worker, a Vietnamese nail salon worker in Los Angeles with a Caucasian client. Uh, that's, and that film is airing at the Vietnamese International Film Festival underway uh, again on Thursday through Sunday here at UC Irvine as well as Bowers Museum and on um, and also on Thursday at UCLA. Uh, for more information on the schedule, you can go online to www.vietfilmfest.com V-I-E-T-F-I-L-M-F-E-S-T dot com and uh, get that information. Uh, this is Dan Zhang with Subversity.